Please remain standing as we read God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 to 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was mag- manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You may be seated. This morning, we are praying for Tim and Kirsten Jenkins. They are currently home on furlough from the mission field, and we're praying for an encouraging and a refreshing time for their family while they're here and involved with the body of Grace Church of Orange. Would you please pray with me this morning? Our Father in heaven, we praise you as the majestic creator of all things. You are sovereign over everything in heaven and on earth, and all loving, having sent your one and only Son to die on the cross to pay for our sins. As we consider your creation, we marvel that you, the God of the entire universe, would consider us to be the center of your love And Lord, we recognize that we are sinful and completely unworthy to stand before you. We have done nothing to merit your love and your favor. We deserve death and judgment, not mercy and grace. But oh, how wonderful your love is towards us. And how amazing is your plan of salvation to all that would believe that, that Jesus came in the flesh. He was vindicated By the Spirit, he was seen by angels, was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. So that we too, by the grace through faith, would be raised up to be with you for eternity. So Father, we thank you for your word and for this church body with whom we are blessed to share in enjoying fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the faith of this church, grow us in in your love for one another, and give us hearts to encourage, as well as the courage to correct and rebuke when necessary. This morning, we lift up Tim and Kirsten Jenkins, and we pray that while they're here on furlough, that their family would be encouraged and refreshed. Lord, give them wisdom to direct their steps and lead them in carrying out their calling to serve you either here at Grace or out in the mission field. Lord, we pray for our our local and our state and national leaders that they would lead with wisdom, discernment, and in ways that honor you. If there are many among us, Lord, that are suffering with physical ailments, injury, enduring hardship or, or stress or loss, Lord, we pray for your strength and your comfort and your peace. May you receive all the praise and glory. 
And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. here by your church. God, we thank you, and we pray that this act of obedience in gathering together, this act of obedience in singing, this act of obedience in, in our worship uh, that is empowered by your spirit and transformed lives that, that come through the blood of your Son. Lord, we pray that this would all testify to your glory. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. 
Good morning. I know this is not the face you are used to. Uh, Pastor Mike is enjoying some very well-earned rest with his family for a few weeks. So you get me, uh, but I am uh, excited to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Connor, and I'm one of the associate pastors at Grace, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be bringing God's Word uh, this morning. Before we get into it, I wanted to give us just an encouragement. You know, um, Pastor Mike works hard, and preaching is not easy work, nor is caring uh, for people's souls. So just wanted to, you know, mention, you know, Pastor Mike, he's a mere mortal as well, and uh, appreciates encouragement. And so anytime you have opportunity to just, you know, tell him and his family in whatever way that you're thankful for him, that goes a long way. Uh, Yeah, so there's that. All right, well, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And these verses that George uh, was just reading are what we're going to be giving our attention to this morning, and specifically one verse, chapter 3, verse 16, which I'll read again in a moment and then pray again for the Lord's help, and then we'll get into it. As you're turning there, I'll just mention this passage that we're looking at this morning is a New Testament hymn. It's a song about Jesus. And it's one of the most succinct and beautiful kind of just uh, summations of who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As we read it, you'll probably notice, huh, this seems a little bit kind of difficult to get my head around. And maybe this is the kind of passage that you've just kind of read through before and never given much thought to, but there's a lot of goodness here. It's all about Jesus. Pastor Mike was gone, and I thought, what should I preach on? How about Jesus? That seems safe. So... Look at verse 16 with me. I'll read again. First uh, Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Lord, we pray this morning that you would have your way in our hearts, that by your Spirit you would exalt our Savior, your Son, Jesus. Help us to see his glory. And we pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's not yet seen his glory, who doesn't yet know him and love him, that today uh, would be the day for them. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, wanting him to be honored. Amen. One of my favorite children's movies is called Up. Anybody seen that movie, Up? Uh, it has like this house that floats because it has these balloons. And in the movie, there's this dog, and the dog's name is Doug. And Doug has this really cool tool. It's a collar, and when he's wearing the collar, it lets him talk. Like he can actually speak English to people. And one of the running gags throughout the movie is that Doug will be talking, he's in a conversation with somebody, and then as he's talking, his eyes will dart off screen, and he says, Squirrel! And then he looks back and resumes the conversation that he was in the middle of. And ever since I first watched that, I thought, wow, Doug is me. I'm just like that. I'm just like that. And if I had to guess, I bet that Doug is like you too. We are a distracted people. And if you want me to prove that to you, have you ever walked into a room and then once you get there, you forget why you even walked there in the first place? Has that happened to you? If it has, then it's proof. We're distracted people, and that's true across all kinds of areas in our lives, but nowhere is it more true than with respect to our life with the Lord. And if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, then you know. You know your own heart, and you know how 
fickle it is and how quick it is to dart away and run away. You're like a car on an icy road that's just constantly sliding out of lane and you have to come back to Christ. And even if you're even if you're a newer believer, you probably have already begun to think, man, why is it so hard for me to keep my eyes on Christ? I just find myself looking away and getting distracted time and time and time again. Whatever our unique situation, we are, we're distracted people. We need again and again to have the Lord bring our attention back to Jesus. And the, the church that is in the eye of Paul as he's writing this letter, 1 Timothy, to Timothy, their pastor, that church was very much like us, a distracted people and prone to the same kinds of distractions. Let me just read to you a few verses. You don't have to turn with me if you don't want, but in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul warns against people who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. In chapter 6, verse 4, he rebukes people for having an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words that produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. And the letter concludes with him saying to Timothy, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And so you can see even there that this church is just like us, and false teachers were trying to pull the people's attention away from Jesus and onto these side quarrels and heady discussions that seemed attractive to people but actually cut against the substance of true godliness. The principle is this. Satan's one play throughout all the ages is to try to divert our attention away from Jesus. That's what he's always trying to do. He wants to pull our eyes anywhere else but to not look at Christ. And Paul's solution to this problem, as he writes to Timothy, is he says to Timothy that again and again and again and again, Timothy needs to preach to the people the true message about Jesus and then live a godly life that supports the message that he preaches. Again and again, he needs to come to them and hold out to them, hey, don't forget what you know. This is the truth about Jesus, and this is the truth that transforms your life, that brings you into communion with God, that keeps you from making a shipwreck of your faith. It's the truth about Jesus that we need. And all of us this morning, I know that there's lots of needs, even just in this room, you have a lot of needs, and I have needs too. But our greatest need, more than anything else, is to, to put our attention on Jesus. He's worthy of our attention, more, more worthy than our phones, more worthy than whatever other distractions there are in our lives. Jesus is worthy of our attention, and this is our greatest need, to have our attention just fixed on him. And so we want to look at this verse, this little hymn, right in the middle of 1 Timothy, which is actually like the thematic and structural center of the book. It unites the first half of the letter with the second half, and you could think of it as kind of the tip of the spear of everything that Paul is trying to say to Timothy about Jesus. He's saying, let me, let me just, let me boil it down for you. And here it is, six lines, a song about who Jesus is and why he's so dear to the church. And so we want to just look at this this morning and turn our eyes onto this same Jesus that people have worshipped for thousands of years and have our hearts drawn again to see our Savior and to fix our attention on Him. So that the introductory formula underscores how great this hymn is. And so we're going to start by looking at the very beginning of 16 at how Paul introduces this, and then we'll turn our attention to these six lines. So quickly with me, look at the introductory formula. Paul says, 
great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And if we cut this in half, we can just think about what he's trying to say. First, he says, great indeed, we confess. The word great is, in, in Greek, the word for mega, or the word is mega. And you don't really need much explanation for that. If you've ever been standing close to someone, and you're on the receiving end of a megaphone, you know the feeling that Paul is getting out here. He's saying, great, mega, big, profound. This is what the church confesses. The church confesses that a mystery of, the mystery of godliness is great. And the second confess is just means to speak the same. And so he says, the church, you and me, the people who have faith in Jesus, we all are united by this common confession. We speak the same thing. And what is it that we say? We say, great is the mystery of godliness. So now, think about that with me. The mystery of godliness. What is it that Paul is talking about? I don't know about you, but when I think mystery, the two things that come to my mind are Scooby-Doo and Hardy Boys. Anyone with me? That's, like, I love, I love Scooby-Doo. I, I just grew up watching that, and I love the Hardy Boys, watching how the mystery was going to come together. So when I think mystery, that's what comes to my mind. Murder mystery, scavenger hunt, playing the game Clue. You know, it was Colonel Mustard with the wrench in the library, that kind of thing. But that's not what's going on here. Because in the New Testament, when we see the word mystery, what usually is in view is something that was once hidden in the secret counsels of God, but has now been revealed in Jesus. Something that was once hidden, but it's now been revealed in Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here. As we get to the hymn, we'll see that in a sense, it is mysterious. It is. We're going to, at times, you know, have to walk away from a certain idea and just feel like we've barely even turned over a spoonful of dirt because the truth in front of us is so great. But it's not because it's confusing or it's some knot that needs to be unraveled. It's just because Jesus is so great. And it's impossible for us to fully get our minds around that. So he says that the, the thing that we confess is that great is this mystery about Jesus. And it's the mystery, he says, of godliness. And this is where it all, I think, comes together for us. Godliness means exactly what you might think. God-likeness, uh, piety, devotion. Basically, he's saying this is a mystery for people who are true worshipers of God. People who actually know him, have fellowship with him, walk with him. And it's the mystery he says, that produces these kinds of people. So here's where this becomes very actionable for us. Do you want to be godly? I, I would imagine if you're a believer, your heart is saying, yeah, I want to be godly. I want to be, I want to be like him. I want to be like God. I want, to, I want to look more and more like Jesus. And maybe you ask the question, okay, how does that happen? How do I move to be more and more like Jesus? And oftentimes, we can immediately default to, well, what are the things that I have to do? What habits do I need? What routines should I put in place in my life? What uh, you know, kind of obedient works are involved in that? But this is saying, no, 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 that's not where godliness begins at all. Godliness, real godliness, is all about a person. It's all about a person. And godliness comes when we become the kind of people who are just thrilled with and excited with and even obsessed with looking at the glory of one person, and that's Jesus. And as we do that, Paul says, and this hymn is going to tell us, as we do that, we're going to be transformed more and more and more into the people that God wants us to be. That's true individually and it's true collectively. This is true, you know, kids are a great illustration of this. When kids are, exciting about some, when kids are excited about something, does it take long for you to find out about that? Not so much, right? 
whatever, I don't know what the cool toys are now. Paw Patrol or I don't know. I don't think My Little Pony is really the, the thing anymore. But whatever it is, if you're excited about that, if you're, if you're a kid, it's like, man, that's the only thing I want to talk about. I just get so excited about whatever it is. And if anybody's in the room, I'm going to tell them about that. Well, if we're believers and we're trying to look more and more like Jesus, the only path towards that, bar none, is to have our attention set on Jesus. I read a quote this week. Devotion begins with attention. If you want to be devoted to Jesus, it begins by putting your attention on him and everything else flows out of that. And so with that in mind as the introductory formula that just highlights for us how great this mystery is, we want to just start to look at this hymn, this song that's been given to us and handed down from the days of the early church. It's a, it's a beautiful song. We won't talk about this, but there's all kinds of parallels and symmetries that run throughout it. The first two lines go together, and so do the next two, the third and fourth, and the fifth and sixth. The first and last line are parallel. The second and fifth line, the third and fourth, there's all kinds of beautiful little intricacies that, that show us someone has really worked hard to boil this down into like a, a, a bite-sized morsel that, that very succinctly captures the truth about our Savior. Not easy to do. My family went on a vacation recently, and one of my brothers had the idea, hey, while we're on vacation, we should all try to write haikus and see who does, you know, the best. Haiku, is it 575? Is that what a haiku is? I don't, you can tell I'm not a poet. But guess what? As we're trying to write these haikus, and we're like being inspired by the sun and the water, and blah, 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 all of our haikus were terrible. They were so bad because it's hard. It's hard to get something synthesized and boiled down to the point that it's this, this tight little package of beautiful truth. But that's exactly what we have in front of us. It is like a, it's six lines, and it's like you could think about it, like a six-course feast. I've never been, but I hear rumors and whispers about a restaurant called The Hobbit. Anybody heard of this? It's on Chapman. It's pretty close. And if you go there, and you have to pay a lot to go there, if you go there, they serve you this amazing feast served in like five, six, seven meals, and it's just like this very, you know, classy dining experience. I've never been. But you can imagine that. You can imagine how this hymn might feel to us. It's like a, a feast served in six lines, six courses, six truths about Jesus. And so we just want to look at this this morning, starting now with the first truth in the first line, which says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. We'll assign a little word to capture each tagline. And the first truth that this hymn holds out to us is the truth of incarnation. This is the truth of incarnation. And immediately, right out of the gates, we're in danger because we are so familiar with this idea. Have you ever been watching a scary movie that you've already seen? And when the big jump scare comes, the person next to you is like, whoa, jumping out of their seat. But because you've already seen it, you're just like cool as a cucumber, totally collected. If you can imagine that, then, then you can see the danger that we might have right off the bat because we've heard the Christmas story so many times. We've seen the flannel graphs with Jesus in the manger. But what we're talking about here is nothing less than the God of the universe becoming a man, a real human being. And immediately we realize that any, any analogy that we could furnish just uh, does nothing to do justice to what's really going on here. This is to both the, the, the mindsets that would have mattered at the time of Paul's writing. This was the most unthinkable thing that could ever happen. 
To the Jews, God was invisible. And so how could he become visible as a man? To the Greeks, God was spirit and flesh was evil. And so how could you ever put spirit and flesh together in one? One person, both God and man, it would have been unthinkable. But that's exactly what happened. And Philippians 2 talks about the humility of Christ as he came. It says, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. You know what that means when it says that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means that Jesus was God. He was the eternal son proceeding from the Father, and he had every reason to reach out and grab onto that divinity as a reason for not going and doing something so humble as taking flesh. But he didn't do it. We do this kind of thing all the time. The boss says, I'm not going to clean that toilet. I'm the boss. The parent says to older kids, not little ones, but I'm not going to clean up that mess. That's your mess. It's little kids. You clean up the mess, right? But, but we, we always are, are, taking, are leveraging our own position or situation to say, I'm not going to do that. But Philippians 2 said with Jesus it wasn't that way. He had every reason to not go and to not do something so humble, and yet that's exactly what he does do. He goes, and in the most amazing, talk about a mystery, the most just enigmatic, difficult thing to get our heads around, God becomes man. Intellectually, we just can't fathom it. Every analogy breaks down. You've probably heard, oh, it's like a man becoming an ant, or it's like opposites colliding, oil and water, or like a house divided, USC versus UCLA, which would be a big divided house. Uh, But even that, insufficient to capture by far what's happened here. It's the most amazing thing. And there's a lot that we could say about the incarnation. I, I want to read to you just, just a, a line from somebody named Athanasius. He was a theologian writing in the 4th century, and he wrote the most, probably the most important and definitely the most well-known book on the incarnation outside of the New Testament. And in the introduction to that book, he invites the reader in in this way. He says, Come now, true lover of Christ. Let us follow up the faith of our religion and set forth also what relates to the words becoming man and to his divine appearing among us, which Jews belittle and Greeks laugh to scorn. But we worship in order that all the more for the seeming low estate of the word, your piety towards him might be increased and multiplied. You see what he's saying? He's saying, let's study the incarnation, not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but so that in seeing the low estate of the word, the logos, God the Son becoming flesh, our piety towards him or our love for him might be increased and magnified. And we want that to happen with us this morning. So lots of things that we could talk about. Let me just think through one thing with you, and that's this. Why, why is it that Jesus became man? This is the heart of our faith. This is the beginning of it all. Without the incarnation, we might as well all just go home. But why did this happen? To answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And you remember God creates the world, and it's amazing. And then on the sixth day, what does he make? The the crown of all his creation, man, made in his image, man and woman, male and female. And the design of God for this earth that we're living on right now was at the very beginning that his glory would spread across the globe as that man and woman were fruitful and multiplied. And as people who were in relationship with God and loved him, they would spread his glory all around the world. But you don't have to read too far in Genesis to see how everything breaks down, right? Because just three chapters later, here's Adam and Eve, and here's Satan coming along and tempting them. They fall, and in a moment, 
All of that plan seems to be absolutely destroyed and demolished because mankind, meant to be the image of God, the ones who would spread His glory, are now hopelessly sinful. And if you read Romans 1, you see the pattern that has been absolutely true throughout history, which is that mankind rejects the glory of God, trades it away for images and idols and other things, and chases after that. And in doing that, mankind descends further and further and further into sin. If you're new here this morning, and you're just, you're just, you just stumbled in, and you're wondering, why is the world so messed up? This is why. It's sin. And, and in this, we see a dilemma, because God can't step down or he can't lower his standards in his own holiness for us so that people like us could just be brought back into a relationship with him. But at the same time, if he just says, well, it's okay, mankind sinned, that's it, they're just never going to be back with me again and have a relationship with me again. Well, he's actually admitted to then the defeat of his ultimate plan for the world because he designed the world so that his glory would spread through the, the, the rule of men and women. And if he says, nope, that plan is off, well, he's admitting that he suffered a defeat, and a defeat suffered at, at no less hands than Satan's, who deceived Adam and Eve. And so here we start to see the beautiful logic of the incarnation and of God's plan of redemption. God can't stoop to us because of his holiness. We can't ascend to God because of our sin. And so, at the right time, according to his infinite wisdom, God sends his own holy son, eternally begotten of him, perfect in every way, to take on sinful flesh. And he comes and he takes sinful flesh to himself and he, he, without sin, lives the perfect life that we couldn't. And then he goes all the way to the humbling, just excruciating death that was crucifixion. And after three days, he plunges through the other side of death and emerges victorious, risen from the dead, having accomplished that which we failed to do, which was to actually live and love the Father and be somebody who actually represents his glory on earth. We failed. Jesus did that. And the amazing hope of the gospel is that if we trust Jesus, we share in his life. We get what he achieved for us, which is the eradication of death and all of the pain that comes with that and an entrance into new life. If you're not a believer this morning, you need to know that the only hope in the world, the only hope in the world that we could enjoy real life, not just physical life, but actual spiritual life, which means to be connected with God and to know and worship Him. The only hope for that is in the incarnation of Jesus. There's lots, lots more that we could say about that, but just to close, just imagine an illustration. Suppose there was a king, okay, and he's ruling over a territory, and he knows that there's a certain city in the territory that's being overrun by just horrible people. They're wicked, and they're, just, they're killing people. It's an awful place. And the king knows that there's no, there's no one else who has the character, the power, the wisdom to go in and make things right. Well, what does the king do if he's noble? He goes at great cost to himself, and he enters into that city, and he works his own salvation. He makes things right when no one else could. And in the incarnation, that's exactly what God has done. He looks at a whole sea of people and says, nope, no one can do it, but I'll go. And the Father sends the Son as the ultimate expression of love. Can I just encourage you as well, if you ever doubt God's love for you, remember the words of Romans 8. He who did, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's a great encouragement. If God didn't hold back his own beloved son, but he gave his son Jesus up for us, there's nothing 
nothing in the world that he would now hold back from us for our ultimate good. That's an amazing thing to hold on to. That is the truth of the incarnation that our hymn holds out in the first line. Let's move on to the second. The, the hymn says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh and then vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. This is the truth of vindication. And we can, we can see why it comes. Vindication means that someone has been proved right or testified to like, yes, they're the real deal. And in light of such an amazing, alarming claim, God became man, of course, people are wondering, hey, can I see some proof? Let's just say, as an example, Josh Orlip, my good friend, who's in the service right now, let's say he walked in, and this morning he had stood up here and said to all of us, I want you to know that I just stepped off a rocket that was at the moon, and I wanted to tell you about that. I don't know what you would do. I would probably think, Josh, I love you, but I need some more information. Really? The moon? That really happened? When we hear amazing claims, we're, we're naturally wanting to say, hey, can I, see some, can I see some proof on this? Thanks, Josh. I didn't tell him I was going to do that. And when we see, some, when we see you know, this outlandish claim, we want proof. And that's exactly what God provides. He says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. God summons into the courtroom the most powerful witness he could possibly bring, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he says, vindicates what Christ has done. So we just want to ask, well, what does that mean? How does the Holy Spirit vindicate Christ? There's lots of points in Christ's ministry where the Holy Spirit's active. He's there in the conception. He's there in his baptism. He's there in his temptation. He's there in his preaching and his miracles. All throughout the Gospels, we see that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus as he goes throughout his life. But to really get to the point of vindication, we need to go to the ultimate expression of vindication, the ultimate stamp of approval and that comes to us in the resurrection. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. Uh, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and then here it is, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection is the ultimate stamp of approval that Jesus really was who he said he was. And against all arguments that Jesus was some irreverent phony or a babbling religious lunatic or a sincere but misguided teacher stands this one amazing claim. The writers of the New Testament actually believed that Jesus died, went into the grave, and then after three days, he rose again. They really believed that, and that belief turned the world upside down as they went out preaching his name. We'll see a little bit more about that in a second. But, man, this is an amazing thought. If, it, if you're, uh, again, just on the edge this morning, and you're considering the claims of Christ, and you're not sure where you stand, I, I want to try to make something clear you know, to you, just for you to think about. 2,000 years ago, historians are all in agreement that there really was a historical man named Jesus, and he was from Galilee. He was a Jewish uh, minister uh, preaching and doing miracles, and then he died by crucifixion. And two possibilities can follow that. Either Jesus died and then stayed dead, or Jesus died and rose again. 
And if you're tempted to, to scoff or to say, no, 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 the res- there's no way that could happen. Well, if there really is a God of this world, of course he can do whatever he wants. He could raise Jesus from the dead. And as we're going to see as this hymn goes on, there's actually so much reason to say, wow, it actually makes sense th- to think that this man, Jesus, really did rise. You have harder things to explain, bigger problems to solve if you say that he stayed in the grave because the impact of his life following his death and then the resurrection in which his disciples believed was so dramatic and so intense that the only real explanation is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I I just want to say, not just for unbelievers, for all of us, if Jesus really did die and rise again, that has massive implications for all of life. You know why? It means that we we sure better listen to him. If you died and then you managed to pull off a resurrection, I think I would listen to you. Almost no matter what you said. Because I would know, hey, this person died and rose again. God's stamp of approval certainly is on that person's life. And I bet that if I died and rose again, it would be the same. You'd probably listen to me. Well, the disciples believe that Jesus died and rose again. It is the ultimate vindication from the Holy Spirit that everything he said, everything he taught, everything he achieved on the cross, it's all real. It's true. This is something that you can stake your life on. If you're an um, American literature person, maybe you grew up like me loving like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. I uh, love those books. And there's a great scene in Tom Sawyer. Maybe you remember. Tom has been kind of you know, away from the town for a while, and the people of the town believed him to be dead. But he wasn't dead. And there's this great scene in which they're holding a funeral for Tom and his friends, and then little Tom Sawyer, with all his pluck and swagger, walks in triumphantly to his own funeral, and everybody's like, wow, he's not dead. Oh, it's, it's a good scene. The New Testament writers believed that if, if someone had wanted to hold a memorial service for Jesus a week or so after he died, if Jesus wanted to, he could have been there in the back row. He didn't stay in the grave, and that changes everything. It's the Spirit's ultimate vindication, and I would just submit to you, it's a question that all of us need to deal with and try to wrestle with because so many people's lives have been changed by faith in a resurrected Jesus. Third line of the hymn is that Jesus was seen by angels. He was seen by angels. And this may to us seem a little bit strange at first because if you think about it, you would go, uh, of course Jesus was seen by angels. He was there with his Father in glory with the angels before he came. And then when he came, you can remember all of the great stories about the angels in Jesus' life. They appear to Mary and Joseph. They appear to the shepherds, right? On Christmas, you know, at Christmas, when, when Jesus has come, the shepherds are there and there's a whole multitude of the angels. So we would say, well, of course the angels have seen Jesus. But is there something maybe more going on here? And to, to get at that, we need to look at the rest of what the New Testament says because it actually, much more than we talk about or think about, it's actually a really common thing in the New Testament, especially when Paul writes, to mention the angels. And what he wants to say is that in Jesus, something has happened that the angels long to look at. This is actually Peter writing, but listen to the words of 1 Peter 1.12. It says, It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And this is the amazing phrase. There are things that before Christ's coming, the angels, who are always with God, were longing to look into. If you're a kid in the room right now, maybe under 10 or 12, do you know... You know the feeling when Christmas morning is coming up 
and suddenly you come downstairs and there's a really big new present under the tree. And maybe if you're not a kid, you can, you can remember this. Remember that feeling when there's a present there and it's like everything in you wants to just peel back a little corner of that wrapping because you're like, ah, Christmas is a week away, but I really want to see what's in there right now. I'm longing. I just want to get a peek. That's exactly what's being said about the angels. They're like longing to see. They just, they want a glimpse. And we have to ask the question, well, what is it that the angels want to see? They're with God all the time already. The only answer can be that the angels are longing for a glimpse in Jesus of a greater revelation of God's glory. They want to see a greater revelation of God's glory than what they've seen before. Angels aren't like us, you know. We are people made in God's image. Angels aren't. They serve him, they're with him, they worship him for his holiness, his justice, his goodness. But what they can never experience in the way that you and me can is forgiveness, grace, compassion, the love of a father for his children, that's something that image bearers, you and me, can experience. And specifically, that's something that sinful people, you and me, can experience. And throughout the New Testament, we see that it's through us, our lives, the church, what God has done in Jesus, that God has put his glory on display to us, yes, but also to people in, or, or to angels in all of the heavenly places. They look at what's happened in the church and they say, wow, God, we see in your people, this people transformed by Jesus, your son, a new reality, a greater and deeper expression of your character than we ever saw before when it was just us with you in in your glory. That is an amazing thought. You and I have a greater window of opportunity into seeing the character of God than even the most holy angels. Because only we have sinned against God, rebelled against him, known that there's nothing in us that would be deserving of life, and only we have seen God send his own son to die for us and to rise again. And in that, we see this amazing expression of God's care for us, his love, his compassion, and we experience that for real. The angels long to see it vicariously through us as they watch our lives, but we actually taste ourselves. And I hope that you've actually tasted that. That you actually, because of knowing and meditating on Jesus and his goodness, that you've actually tasted, man, it is so good to know the character of God and his forgiveness and mercy towards me. I love him because of what he's done for me. The angels want to see it. A quick just illustration again. My wife is pregnant right now. And when you're pregnant, one of the total just bummer things about that is that you can't eat certain foods. And my wife loves sushi. She loves sushi. And guess what? You can't eat sushi when you're pregnant. And so for the last, you know, seven months, probably every week or maybe every day, I've been hearing about how excited she is. She's sitting right there. How excited she is to have sushi when this baby is finally out of her. She's so ready. And sometimes when we're driving, as we pass a sushi restaurant, it's almost like I can watch the magnetic pull on her eyes. Just like, there it is can't wait. Or a video, you know, of someone just like slicing up this fresh ahi or salmon, and you're just, it's like you're riveted. She can't even eat it, but it's like in looking at it, you just get almost, it's like I can almost taste it. 
I like to think that maybe that's what the angels were like as they watched as Jesus, you know, I'm just thinking of right at the end of his life, he goes from the garden to his trials. The angels are watching, like, what's going on here? Jesus says that at any time, if he wanted to call off the plan, he could call on his father and 12 legions, 50,000 or so angels would immediately show up to rescue him, but he doesn't. And he goes further. He carries his cross, but he can't even carry it because he's been so beaten and wounded. And so he limps towards the place of his crucifixion. He's nailed there to that tree, and he dies for the sin of his people, becoming a curse for them. The angels saw all of that. And then three days later, imagine the excitement as the angels watched as the buried body of Jesus began to breathe again. He'd done it. Accomplished salvation. I just can't imagine, you know, the party that must have been going on in heaven as God's servants watched the amazing display of God's character and sending his own son to die for sinners and said, wow, God, you are so, so great. We knew of your holiness and your righteousness, but in this we see your compassion and your grace. And you and I, we get to taste that firsthand. We don't have to just watch the video or look at the restaurant. We can actually go and partake as we meditate on who Jesus is and see God's love towards us in him. That's the truth about Revelation. Fourth line of our hymn is that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations This is the truth about proclamation. There's just a few things that we want to say here. At first, this might seem pretty pedestrian. You know, we've been talking about God made flesh and and the Spirit vindicating him and angels seeing, and now it's just, well, he was proclaimed among the nations. Why is this so, you know, amazing? Well, the reason is for two words. First, nations, and second, proclaim. The nations is amazing just on account of the fact that up until this point, God's people had been the Jews, And yet now in Christ, something totally new was happening and the gospel was going everywhere. And man, this is good news for us because the gospel, this is saying, the gospel has no boundaries. The word that's used for nations is the word from which we get ethnic. And to the Jewish mind, it would have meant, oh, the gospel's pushing past Israel. It's going outside of the Jewish nation. This good news is for everybody. That's good news. Imagine if there was a dad who came home and said something like this, which would be so terrible, but I've got ice cream, but guess what? None of it's for you. That would be pretty, that'd be pretty cold, right? Pretty cold-blooded. No good loving dad would do anything like that. Well, imagine if it was like, Jesus has come, but he's not for you. That'd be bad news for us. But this is saying, no, it is good news for us. And I love to think about, you know, here we are, probably most of us ordinary Orange County type people, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and two millennia removed from the life of this carpenter from Nazareth, and yet we gather Sunday after Sunday to worship him as the exalted God of, uh, over all. That's incredible. And the reason that that's happened is because the Lord has opened the door of salvation to all, and the gospel is springing forward across all the nations. It's not just us. Here we are in sunny California, but you go up to Frigid, Alaska, there's people worshiping Jesus there at the bottom tip of South America and in Africa and Asia and Australia, maybe Antarctica, a few people are worshiping Jesus because the gospel has gone to the nations, and that's an amazing truth. The second reason that it's such an amazing truth is that it was proclaimed, proclaimed. And here, we just want to say and recognize, one, isn't it incredible and I always love to think about this, that these weak, stumbling, faltering disciples of Jesus became the powerful preachers of the gospel that they did following his ascension. It's amazing. How do you account for that? 
And I would say the only way you really can account for the boldness that begins to grab on to Peter and to Paul and to all the rest of Jesus' disciples is that something new was happening, and it was the pouring out of his spirit from heaven. Second reason it's so encouraging is because it validates. This idea that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, it validates what we gather to do every single Sunday. I don't know if this is the case, but sometimes I wonder, as people drive by, you know, on Fairhaven and go up and over our church and they see it, or maybe when they're on the 55 and they look at our church, I just wonder if people who aren't believers think, I can't believe that there are still people who every week show up to just hear some guy talk about some old guy from a book, Jesus. It seems so antiquated, so outmoded. Don't they know that there's like multimedia now? Shouldn't they be playing videos at least? But here we are, just a guy like Pastor Mike or like myself, some normal guy, nothing special here, obviously, and yet you're here listening to the message about Jesus. And it's encouraging to us to know that this is exactly how God planned it. He's always planned that the gospel would take ground, move forward, advance on the lips of unworthy servants who are just vessels for the good news. The treasure has been put in jars of clay, useless people, but we go forward with a message. And not just preachers or people who stand up here, all of us. We proclaim to people the message about Jesus. Every time you're telling your kids about Jesus, or serving in a class here, an adult class, or a kid's class, or with youth, or doing outreach in a park, or at the old folks' home, every time you're doing that, you're stepping into this story. It's carrying on still. Jesus was proclaimed to the nations, and that's, that's why we're here today, and aren't you glad that we are? The next truth fits hand in glove with this one. It's, it's the truth of transformation. And what Paul says is, and what the hymn says in the fifth line, is that Jesus was believed on in the world. And this one's pretty direct. What it's saying is, hey, Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, and then guess what? It worked. It worked. Have you ever attempted something that you thought had a very low chance of success? I am very bad with cars. Not good. Some of you in the room, maybe you're like auto mechanic type people, you know, you do your own brakes. That is not me at all. But one time, my starter went out in my car, and I thought, you know what? This is a great chance to be a man. I'm going to do this myself. And so I go on YouTube, and I'm like, how do you replace a starter? And I order the part online, and it comes. And I'm out there, you know, just in the sun with the hood up, feeling so manly, just, you know, getting the black stuff on my arms. You know how little I know about cars because I said black stuff. Uh, I'm all dirty, and then I go, and I put the key in the ignition. It didn't work. But then I went back, and I kept working. And then I finally put the key in. Vroom, the car revved to life, and I was like, wow, I can't believe that worked. I know nothing about cars. Do you ever think that when Peter was preaching at Pentecost, he's just denied Jesus, he's been restored to ministry, and here the Spirit falls, and almost like, I almost picture him like watching as to his own amazement. He stands up and starts delivering this powerful message about the cross of Jesus. And then 3,000 people believe. Do you think he was like, what just happened? It worked. Or Paul, as he goes to Corinth, which was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, a city renowned for its sensuality and sinfulness. He goes and preaches the, the message of Jesus. It's a simple message. Jesus died and was buried and was raised again. He's the Messiah, the Lord of all. Trust in him and repent from your sins and you'll be saved. 
and people believe the message. People believe and their lives are radically and completely transformed. This is the truth of transformation. If you're doubting the reality of the gospel, one of the greatest encouragements can be to look at how the gospel has turned the world upside down. There's a great line in the movie um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Love that movie. And maybe you've seen it. Captain Jack Sparrow is the leading man. He's awesome. He's a pirate. And at one point, he's taken into custody by an admiral in the royal, or not, the, you know, her, her majesty's royal navy. And this admiral is saying to him, you know, he's kind of evaluating things, and he, he gets to a point where he says, I won't try the accent. I tried it in first service, and I thought, nope, not second service. <laughs> he says to him, you are, without doubt, the worst pirate I've ever heard of. To which Jack Sparrow responds, ah, but you have heard of me. I, lo I love that line. And these two lines of the hymn are saying, Jesus was proclaimed to the nations. People have heard of him and not just heard, but believed and watched as their lives were turned upside down by this amazing Savior and the message of the cross. The final line of the hymn says that Jesus was taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. This is the truth about exaltation, and it's a very fitting place for the hymn to end. We've already gone through his incarnation and then his life and ministry and the way he's impacted the world, and now the hymn ends with him ascended into glory. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is alive and real and at the right hand of God. He's seated because the work is done. You don't sit down until the work is done. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's at his right hand because that's the position of ultimate authority in all of the universe. He's alive. And if you know him, if you know him, think about how encouraging this is. There is a man who is still flesh and blood there in heaven who is advocating for you and interceding for you. And your relationship with him is so close and so profound that in Ephesians 2, Paul can say that we've been raised up with him into the heavenly places. The father loves his son, and if you're in Christ, you enjoy that same position with God that Jesus does. A beloved son or daughter close to God, with him, in relationship with him, all because of Jesus. He is our exalted Savior, and he's coming back again. When the angels uh, are there and Jesus has just ascended in Acts, they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who's been raised, is going to come again just as he's left. And that's our great hope. The exalted Jesus is going to come again to rule the world, and he is worthy, worthy of all of our attention and trust. There it is, six lines, a six-course feast about Christ. We've been through his incarnation, his vindication, the revelation to the angels, his proclamation, transformation, and finally exaltation. What we need to know is that Jesus is God made flesh. He's come for us, died for us, risen for us, and that has been confirmed for us in every way imaginable. It is confirmed by his resurrection, by the power of the Spirit. It is confirmed by the angels who saw and worshiped at the revelation of God's glory in Christ. It's confirmed as these formerly frail men went and proclaimed the gospel of Christ to all the nations. It's confirmed by the transformation that's occurred in the community of believers, and it will be ultimately and finally confirmed when Jesus comes back. 
Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow. Some of us bow now, and I hope that it won't be the case for you that you only bow later, because everybody who trusts Christ now can know him as Lord and Savior. Final encouragement to you as we close is just this. We said that the mystery of godliness is this truth about Christ, and I would just encourage you, whether you're in the best time of your life or the worst time of your life, if you want to be somebody who's really godly, who really walks with the Lord, the only road towards that is to just put your attention on Jesus. Nothing else will suffice. Nothing else will do. No shortcut will work. I would just encourage you, as much as you can, take time with prayerful, spacious meditation to, to consider Jesus, to worship him, to pray to him, to think about what a great thing he's accomplished for us. That is the path to being truly godly. It's true of us individually, and it's true of us as God's people as well. And as we do that, that's the most exciting pursuit in the world, to worship Jesus and through him, Father and Spirit as well. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these truths that you've held out to us in your word this morning. We pray that it would lift up our eyes to Jesus, that um, he would be exalted still more in our hearts. Lord, please keep the exalted Christ front uh, of mind for us, right before our eyes, that he would be our vision, that we would look to him in the best times of our life and in the worst as the only one who could save and as the one who cares for us and loves us, knows our weakness, and has been there with us in the pain. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you. You are our King and Savior. We praise you and we thank you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing in closing. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou
song to close with. Jesus is great. Amen. He's great and he's worthy of all of our affection and attention and devotion. Thanks for being with us this morning. If you're new here, come back next week and then come back again in two weeks and you'll hear Pastor Mike as well. Um, Let me close by reading from Romans 16 verse 25 and on. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me Cry with